Today's reading is Galatians 2, 1 to 10, and it's on page 1168 of the Bibles here. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I have been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. My name is Johnny. If I haven't met you, I uh, hope you get the chance to meet you soon. Let's, uh, let's pray together, give a chance for some of the, uh, some of the people dropping kids off to, to come back in and, and we'll start. Lord, we thank you for um, your word, which has just been read to us, the word of God for us today. Please would you speak to us, Holy Spirit, through this truth. Please help us to understand and please help us uh, change us in our hearts in the ways that you desire to change us and conform us to Christ this morning, that you may be glorified, we pray. Amen. So um, one thing, uh, if you've been around, around here for any amount of time, you know we, we care about as a church, uh, at the Gate Church, is becoming a diverse family. And uh, and that's just saying, in church, we share one Father God together, and so we belong together as, uh, as, as, as a family, but people from all different kinds of backgrounds and uh, life experiences, whatever our gender or our age or our ethnicity or our cultural background or our social background, whatever we like, whatever interests we have, we may be different, but we belong together as one family of God in the church. And, and it's a beautiful diversity that we see together in the family of Christ. And we both delight in that diversity as, as a beautiful gift of God to be received, but also see it as a necessity for us as a church in this context, in our community, to uh, be faithful, uh, a faithful church, a faithful witness, a faithful presence of Christ uh, in our local community. Now, we know we've got a long way to go on this, but we are making some progress. And one reason I know that is because of the number of different people I hear saying to me, or I hear of saying, that they find um, church life hard because other people around aren't like them. And they find that difficult. 
Sometimes they feel on the edge or isolated or, or a little bit lonely. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing in itself. I don't want this to be a church where people feel on the edge and isolated and lonely, okay? Let, hear, hear me right on that. But the fact that that's coming from quite a wide variety of different people with different experiences and different backgrounds and different ages who, who are expressing that that's their experience of life and, and they're feeling that for actually very different reasons, whether it's the age or, or their culture, their background, their theological convictions, the worship style they prefer, whatever else it is, well, that tells me that that's the growing pains of us becoming a diverse family. A key question for us as we experience that and as we face those growing pains is, what is it that's going to enable us to stay together and truly become the diverse family of God that we think he's calling us to be? What's going to keep us from just splintering off into our little kind of communities of people who are just like us, just our age, just our life stage, just our background and our culture, and where it's just so comfortable and people just suit us down to the ground? What's actually going to keep us together as the people of God? Now, rather than focusing on our differences, it's keeping what we have in common as our center, isn't it? And working out how that shapes and transforms our life and our community together. In, in this letter to the Galatians, and, and do have it open if, if you're upstairs, we're in Galatians 2, 1 to 10 today. Um, Terry just read it to us. In this letter, we see how the gospel of Christ holds us together and unites us amidst our differences in the church. And there's three things in, in, in this passage today, Galatians 2, 1 to 10, that I, kind of, I want us to draw out. Um, and I'm really sorry, I've gone all in on the alliteration this week, so forgive me uh, if you just hate that when someone does that. Um, change it into your own words. But here we go, three things. It's through, uh, through preserving our gospel convictions, through protecting our gospel community, and through pursuing our gospel callings. Uh, let me just take five minutes at a start here to explain what's going on in the background of Galatians 2, what's happening, what's happening in that situation, the events around there, and then we'll draw out those three lessons uh, for us. So the, if you want to read up on the background, don't do it now because you'll get lost, but go to Acts 11, Acts chapter 11 after, after this later on today, and you can, you can have a look. We're still in the first 15 years uh, of the church after Jesus has, has uh, lived and died and risen, and, uh, and kind of within the first 15 years after that, this new movement of the church, uh, of, of, of Jesus' followers, is emerging and growing out of the roots uh, in the Jewish religion and culture around Jerusalem. Uh, and Paul, who writes this letter, is a key leader of this movement. It's about 14 years since he's become a Christian. Uh, and we saw last week that he's basically been hanging out uh, most of that 14 years up in the northern uh, part of, kind of, of, of where Israel was at that time and uh, kind of around this place called, called Antioch and, and in the region of Syria. And, uh, and he's been in that region preaching and teaching and, and more recently, he's been in Antioch, so he, he wasn't there for quite a while. Antioch was like the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It was quite a big deal, um, I think behind Rome and probably Jerusalem. And, uh, and what had happened was the church in Antioch had started about 10 years before this. So um, Jerusalem's down there in the south, that bottom circle. And, and uh, what had happened is there'd been a persecution of the church in Jerusalem, and people had gone up to Antioch to escape that uh, and, and told people about Jesus and large numbers of Greeks had turned uh, to Jesus and trusted in him. And so in Antioch, you've got this lively and this growing church, about 10 years old, and it's got this right mixed bag of people from a load of different backgrounds and from a load of different cultures, all following Jesus. 
And so they needed to find a name for these people. And so in Antioch, they gave them this nickname. They started calling these Jesus followers Christians. So that's the first time that people were called Christians. And in this culturally mixed church of of Antioch, people were working out what it looks like to live out the freedom of Christ together, but coming from loads of different backgrounds. And and so this church in Antioch had a far less Jewish flavor to it because it wasn't kind of in the heartlands of Jerusalem where a lot of the the Jewish influence was and the Jewish culture was. And and people weren't used to the ceremonies and the rituals and, and the festivals of Judaism. They didn't really see that as an important part of trusting and following Jesus. They realized that it's all about the grace of Christ, transforming your heart and then working out on your life, not a load of external kind of traditions and religious stuff that you put into your life. And there had been such growth in this church of Antioch that about 10 years in, it became like the second major center of the church. So you've got Jerusalem, where it all started, and now you've got Antioch as well. So what happens is the guys in Jerusalem kind of, they're like, what's going on up at Antioch? Let's, let's find out. So they send a guy called Barnabas up. He's sent from Jerusalem to check it out, and, and Barnabas is this incredibly godly man. He's got a Jewish heritage himself, and he's become a Christian, and we're told he's a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And he rocks up at Antioch and he sees all of this stuff going on. And we're told that he sees the grace of God in this freedom. He's amazed and he loves it and he's glad about it and he encourages them, remain true to the Lord Jesus, church in Antioch. Be devoted to him in your hearts. He goes to, um, to Tarsus where Paul was and brings him to Antioch, which is why Paul ends up in Antioch. A little while later, some others come up from Jerusalem to Antioch. And they take a very different view of what's going on. If you look down at our passage, Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. They're they're these false believers who infiltrate the ranks of the church in Antioch to spy on the freedom they have in Christ Jesus and make them slaves. See, these guys, they're not impressed that the Jewish law and the traditions are not being upheld. How can these people claim to know and love God but not follow the law of Moses? To be proper Christians, they need festivals and rituals and food laws and this kind of stuff. Then then we'll really know that they're serious and they're pure and they're showing that they're set apart as the people of God. Now, we don't really know the, the motives of these people, but I think they're probably not bad motives that they have in this. This stuff is really important to them. And they, they're really concerned for these other Christians. They think these Christians need this stuff to live a faithful Christian life. But ultimately, it's about making other people more like them rather than more like Christ. And Paul spots this danger and he calls it out as spiritual warfare over people's souls. And so he says, he writes, basically saying, look, this is like a covert ops going on, infiltrating our ranks to capture us and and enslave people. You see, Paul sees that it is spiritual slavery to have to meet certain standards that are set by other people. It's spiritual slavery to have to prove yourself by the traditions and the values of people to know that you are safe in Christ and to show that you are safe in Christ. It's spiritual slavery because it's tying yourself to something that you can never do and something you can never achieve. What happens a little bit after this is actually Paul and Barnabas end up going from Antioch down to Jerusalem. They're going on an aid trip. 
It's a bit like this week. We've heard about, some of you have heard about, and we, you maybe heard about it elsewhere, um, these relief missions that some people are starting to go on to Ukraine. Some Christians and others are going. They're taking minibuses across Europe, delivering medicine and food and, and rescuing children from the war-torn land. And it's a similar thing here. Where, where Paul and, and Barnabas go on, on this aid trip, Paul says in verse 2 that it was a revelation that, that took them there. Most likely it was through this um, a guy called Agabus who was a prophet. He gave a prophecy of a prediction of a famine coming uh, to the Roman Empire at the time. And so the Christians in Antioch um, kind of whipped, whipped around, passed around a hat and all chucked in some money and said, Paul and Barnabas, take this money down to the Christians in the south to, to support them and, and to help them. And so Paul and Barnabas... Go to, um, go to Jerusalem from Antioch with this guy called Titus as well, with this gift to help the Christians facing the famine. And so in this little kind of aid relief trip of people, you've got this really beautiful cross-section of the Church of Antioch on display. You've got the Apostle Paul. We know enough about him. You've got Barnabas, the encourager, the Jewish Christian who's well-known, well-liked in the Jerusalem church. He's kind of, it's like a homecoming for him in some ways. And then you've got Titus, He's this young new leader in the church. He's from a Greek background. And he's this, been this convert to Christianity from a Greek background. And, and he's part of this group as well. They're not asked to visit Jerusalem by the apostles. They're not summoned there. And they're not going to discuss the gospel or their ministry. They're going to deliver some aid. But while they're there, Paul grabs the chance to catch up with the leaders of the church and to discuss these things. He wants to ensure that he is not running and has not run his race in vain. It's not Paul, um, (coughs) I don't think, having doubts in his ministry and his gospel message, but it's more that he wants to prove those doubters wrong. No, this is not in vain. This is true gospel and true gospel ministry. So what happens, we read in, in this chapter, is that this private meeting is set up with this little mission team and and the big three esteemed leaders in the Jerusalem church. Verse 9, James, Peter, who's also called Cephas, it's confusing, two names, and John. And and that meeting is really important because that is where gospel conviction, gospel community, and gospel calling are on the agenda. Will their freedom in Christ be protected and preserved, or will it be stolen from them? Can our local church really be a diverse family? And if so, how? Or are we just going to splinter off into our own echo chambers? What will hold us together? Let's draw some lessons from what's going on in Galatians 2 together. That's the history. So if I lost you, come back to me now, okay? That was just a bit of the the local context. Here's the things that we learn from this. Number one, preserving our gospel convictions. In verse 5, Paul and, and the Christians in Antioch say that they will not give in to these Judaizers for a moment. We won't give in to them. These people proclaiming this other message. So that the truth of the gospel, the good news of Christ, is preserved for you, he says to the Galatians. So, so in this meeting, Paul presents his gospel that he's been preaching to uh, among the non-Jews in verse 6. And nothing is added to that message by the guys from Jerusalem. It's all approved and agreed by everything. Nothing is added because it's the same gospel uh, that they received from Christ as well, that Paul has received. In in fact, if you look at verse 8, we can see that the God who was at work in Peter was also the God who was at work in Paul. 
that Paul says that they, they both received the same grace of Christ. And so they share in the same fellowship together. And so at the end of this passage, they give the, this weird thing, the right hand of fellowship, which is just acknowledging their unity and oneness. One gospel, one grace, one fellowship. There's no favoritism. There's no hierarchy in this gospel. And so it's very clear that they're all agreed on what they believe. They're all agreed on what the heart of the gospel message is. It's the good news of the grace of Christ, as we've already seen in this letter. And the freedom that we have in Christ. It's a free gift for us. It's not something we earn or we achieve or we deserve in any way. And so not for a moment will Paul and his colleagues give in on that. They won't give an inch on that. They won't let that message be perverted or distorted so that their freedom might be stolen. You see, to preserve our gospel convictions, it means not only knowing the gospel with clarity, being clear on who Jesus is and what he has done and is now doing and one day will do, but it's holding on to that for our dear life. A conviction is something you hold on to firmly, something you will not let go. The danger for all of us is that we assume this gospel. We stop talking about it. We stop preaching it. We stop thinking about it. We stop exploring it together because we think we've got it down. And so over time, if we just assume it and it stops being a thing we talk about and we think about and we teach and we apply to one another's lives, we begin to neglect it. And then we forget it. And then it becomes perverted. And so then we, in the end, we lose it altogether. And then it's lost, and it hasn't been preserved for the people in our community who need the gospel of Christ. It hasn't been preserved for the next generation, our kids who grew up in this church and beyond. We failed to pass on to them what we first received. See, in, in church, we must hold tightly to our convictions of this good news of Christ. We must not let go. We must hold on. We must steward it faithfully. We mustn't muck around with it or or tamper with it or add to it in any way. We must preserve the truth of the gospel. And we must do that for others. That looks like us keeping the main thing the main thing. What binds us together isn't some church vision statement. Isn't some kind of ministry model. It's not how alike one another we are. Our people are like me here. It's not our secondary theological convictions and distinctives. It's not our worship style or the music we like. It's not our age or our sex. It's not our class background. It's not our skin color. It's not our culture. None of that is what binds us together is the good news of Jesus. Who he is, what he's done, what he's now doing. That is what we stand on together. That is what we have together. And it is, only, it is the only basis on which we can be and we are united and so it's going to be the heart of our theology it's going to be the heart of our preaching it's going to be the heart of our discipleship we need to hold on to this gospel together and preserve our gospel convictions it also means that it has to be and it always must be the boundary marker for any movement or expression of Christian unity across churches or denominations or groups or networks or whatever else it is. One gospel, one God, one grace, one fellowship. 
sometimes Christians try to unite together around other things, and, and they can be very good and legitimate causes, but as a center ground, they can't be the boundary marker of our unity. Whether it's aid relief or social justice or political change or, or building community in some way, they're all good things that we may partner with others in, but they're never the basis or the foundation of our unity. Our job in the Church of Christ is to preserve, is to preserve our gospel convictions, to stand steadfast on them together and all that we have in him together, to not be moved on. That's an active thing. That's a proactive thing that they needed to do 2,000 years ago and we still need to commit ourselves to today. But secondly, we also see the need here to protect our gospel community. Next week, Johnny's going to have more time to explore this in in much greater depth. But but I think it's important to see now. You see, it's no good just doubling down on the gospel and the truth of the gospel and our convictions if that doesn't go to work transforming and reforming our community life together and and the culture of how we relate to, uh, to each other and how we treat other people. There's too many in the church who hold such clear and strong gospel convictions and yet are not strong, uh, not concerned um, nearly enough with cultivating a culture of gospel community. Not concerned with, with, with the grace of Christ so infusing our life together that, that the church sparkles and shines in the darkness of the world around. But we need to be protecting our gospel community is really vital and it's us learning to live a gospel culture of grace together. And so to cultivate that and then to protect it in in our church life together. It's it's the grace of Christ Christ shaping how we live uh, and what we expect of others and and what we encourage others in and even what we sometimes uh, would would, um, ask of others. This is vital for our spiritual health as a church, especially as a diverse family. Now this comes up in, in Galatians 2 around poor old Titus. He's this Greek gospel partner of Paul. And he's been taken into the heart of the Jerusalem church, where it's all uh, very Jewish in flavor. And he's this case study for what it looks like for people who aren't from a Jewish background, from a non-Jewish background, to become part of the people of God. And so the question comes up whether Greeks like Titus need to be circumcised to be included in the people of God's. You can imagine as, as, as kind of Titus' ears prick up as they start talking about this. That circumcision was the physical marker before Jesus of what it meant for, for people to belong uh, to the people of God. And, and for Titus, it's a close shave, but no, he does not need to be, he is not compelled to be circumcised because he is a Greek. And that's because the people of God are no longer marked out by signs like circumcision, but are now marked out by receiving the grace of Christ and the Holy Spirit of God. You see, the risk for Paul and Titus is this. There's some obvious risk for Titus, but the bigger risk is this. If they give in on this stuff, if they give in on this stuff, they give up the freedom they have in Christ, and so they're made slaves again. Because having to meet the standards of others, having to meet certain cultural expectations, having to behave according to certain norms in in a certain way that others are imposing to us, in addition to the gospel and faithfulness to Christ, 
Well, it's introducing a standard that people cannot keep, and so it's tying them to something that is a cruel master over them. It's putting them back in spiritual slavery. And the mad thing is, these teachers thought they're doing the Christians a favor and trying to impose this stuff on them. They thought they were helping them to grow in Christ and grow in their faith, but they weren't. You see, we too could think that we're doing people a favor. We could think we're helping them and we're doing good for them. But actually, we're enslaving them spiritually to our standards and to our expectations and leading them away from their freedom in Christ. We've got to protect our gospel community. We've got to protect grace amongst us. That it is grace and grace alone that's the air we breathe as we disciple one another, as we minister to one another. That we don't unwittingly impose these other standards on, uh, on, on people to belong to uh, the people of God or for them to know and show that they really belong to Christ and that they're at home in the church. You see, it's possible for us to start off with a gospel heart and a gospel culture and over time, certain other cultural standards and values that we hold so dear become important to us and become the core thing for us. And if we do that, we'll find that we make slaves of ourselves and one another, stealing away the freedom we have in Christ. Here's some possible examples for us. We could make middle-class values and lifestyles and ways of relating normative and expect people to have to enter into that, all of these cultural standards that exist around that way of living if they're really going to feel like they belong and they're at home in this church. That's spiritual slavery if we do that to people. We can cause people to think that there's certain narrow ideas around the way that they should dress and the way that they should look and present themselves and the clothes they wear in order to belong and feel at home. So they don't fit in if they don't, feel, if they don't look a certain way. We can maybe let our personal preferences around worship culture and style to become a norm that we think that everyone else has to line up with if they're really going to be a proper Christian or really be faithful to Christ. Or we could let banter and in-jokes that form so much of our conversation become so exclusive and so kind of culturally narrow that it means that people need to feel like they need to adopt and take on this other way of talking or, or, or learn these new rules of language or whatever else it is to get comfortable and feel a sense of belonging and home in our church community. There's probably other ways we can think of it. It can all be very subtle. No one's going around saying, oh, you have to wear this, you have to wear that, but we can create a culture that can kind of passive-aggressively and communicate all of these things to people. Communicate to them that you've got to do these things, you've got to look this way, you've got to be this way in order to be a proper Christian, in order to belong here. Listen, we don't want those things to be in our culture. We don't want those things to be in the air we, we breathe in this church. We need to be aware of the potential for these things, that these are the things we might slip into. They might become normal to us. We want to care about these things and safeguard our, our, um, our community, that it is one that is gospel-shaped and gospel-drenched and full of grace and not other cultural standards that we might impose on one another. 
We want to protect the freedom in Christ that we each have. The beauty of what was going on in Antioch, which Paul defended with real zeal and conviction, it was that mixed church, that mixed community. And, and freedom of Christ was, uh, in Christ was being worked out there. People from all kinds of different backgrounds. And, and it's a brilliant and a beautiful thing when we find our common ground in Christ, in the gospel in him. And so may we learn to do the same as they were doing in Antioch and protect that gospel community and so we could be a shining light to people around us. So preserving our gospel convictions, protecting our gospel community. Here's the third and final thing that we draw from this passage. It's pursuing our gospel callings. You see, they share the same gospel. And yet they recognize that they have different callings within it. You see, you see that kind of in verses 7 to 9 here. It's Christ who's entrusted the task to Paul to take the gospel to the non-Jews. It's called the Gentiles somewhere. That's just a name for people who aren't of a Jewish background in, in the Bible. Um, and, and Peter at the same time has uh, a calling and has been entrusted with taking the good news of Christ to the Jews, to his fellow Jewish people. And, and it's, it's the same God that's at work in both of them. And yet they should go and pursue the ministries God has called them to. They share one gospel, but they have a different mission field. They have a different calling on that same gospel on their life. And so they encourage each other, go and pursue the calling that God has placed on you. Be convinced in your own mind of your calling, in your own heart and mind. It's the unity of the gospel that enables them to have a generosity of spirit as they go in what they're called to. So just after this meeting that we're, we're reading about here, Paul does go off on his first mini- uh, missionary journey and, and goes and preaches the good, good news of freedom in Christ to loads of people who aren't from a Jewish background. For the first time, people in, in new parts of the world are hearing this news. And all the while he's doing that, he knows, yeah, I'm on the same team as those guys. Yeah, they're going to another place. They're going on another mission that God's called them on. But we're preaching the same gospel. The same gospel is going out. We're in the same team. We see modelled here this, this generosity of spirit that we have in the gospel and in the church to those who we share the same gospel with and yet have a different calling to. We're not to be distrustful. We're not to be suspicious of those who God has called to something slightly different to us. It's why it's really important. This church, we're an independent church, which means there's some extent to which we kind of exists by ourselves, but it's really important that we're in partnership with other churches who have different callings and, and different missions that God's called them on, and yet we're connected to and, 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 and we're partnered with. And we do that through, through a number of things, through the FIEC, which is like a national network of churches we belong to, through a church partner movement that's international called, the, uh, called Acts 29, and through a movement in our city, which was called 2020 Birmingham, but it's now called the Birmingham Collective for Church Planting. Some of you, news for you. But it's about church planting across this city. Those partnerships are vital to us as a church. It connects us in in, in fellowship in one gospel with many other churches around our city and our country and our continent and the world. They have different callings. They have different mission fields. They have different things that God is doing in and through them. Different missions entrusted by Christ. And yet they have the same gospel, the same God, the same grace of Christ, the same fellowship. But it applies personally too, doesn't it? Each of us should know and pursue our own God-given call. And we don't need to compare and contrast or judge others in church according to what they do or don't do compared to 
us. That God has placed you, you in that ministry hub or on that Sunday team. God has placed you in that workplace or with those people that you work with. God has put you in your family and not me. He's put you in your street or your neighbourhood and not the person sitting next to you at the moment. That is God's calling on your life. That is your mission field for the gospel of Christ and it's not mine. I've got mine and you've got yours. And each of us should be convinced that where God has placed us, we will do his work. We will follow his call and we'll pursue the spread of the gospel where we are. Michael wants to help us with that tonight. Dig deep, reach out. This is your plug. 7.30 at the office to think about how we can faithfully be a witness to Christ with those we're amongst, God has placed us amongst. One gospel, different callings. One thing that is not optional for all of us as we pursue those callings. Do you see that in verse 10? All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I'd been eager to do all along. That's a non-negotiable for all of us. See, poverty is less about how many material possessions or money a person does or doesn't have. That is relevant, but that's, it's more than that. Poverty is as much about people's experience of life. It's people in society who feel and are powerless. People who see no hope for the future. People who are in a constant struggle day by day to get by. Who, who are living day by day. Who are... Uh, who often don't have a sense of meaning or, or sometimes even a loss of purpose, sometimes struggling with things like shame and low self-worth and uncertainty and kind of just something could knock them over quite easily. People who have gospel convictions, people who are cultivating a gospel community will always be, must always be, people who are concerned for those who are poor, must be those who continue to remember the poor in our gospel callings, for they are those who God delights to reveal himself to and in, because God loves to do things against the world's standards. Now it is such a shame, it's such a shame that in the UK, in the last 80 years or so since the Second World War in the church, we've shown a commitment to preserving the truth of the gospel, We've, we've, we've sought hard to hold firm to our convictions and yet we seem at the same time to have forgotten the poor. And still today it seems like we forget the poor. There's lots of evidence of that where you look on any major city in the UK where most of the ch- gospel churches are. They're in the wealthier and the, the easier areas to be in. But as we go where Christ leads us, as you go where Christ leads you, on our own respective callings and missions, in your workplace, in your neighbourhood, on your street, in your family, in, in, in your friendship circles or your hobbies or wherever else it is you go, we will always encounter those who are poor and who are battling with poverty around us. And the radical good news of Jesus will always lead us to remember them, to care for them, to reach out to them with the love and also the truth of Christ. That is non-negotiable for all of us, whatever our calling. I, I, I believe God is 
God is doing something in our church as he is shaping us into this diverse family. I do think we're experiencing some of the growing pains of that. And yet a diverse family that holds and seeks to hold firm and hold fast to the truth of, of the good news of, the, of grace in Christ and then tries, having held fast to that, to work out how does that actually shape how we live together, how we treat one another, how we do gospel families, how, how we relate, all of these things. How, how does that shape our, our church life together in the way that God's called us at this time? Now we're stumbling forward in that, I think is the way to think about it. But it's the good news of Christ that is to be at work amongst us, that is to be at work in us. It's his grace that is to be our center ground, that is to hold us together as we work this stuff out. And so this passage, and my encouragement to us today, is let's, let's preserve our gospel convictions. Let's protect with zeal our gospel community. And let each of us pursue our own gospel calling with conviction. Let's pray that God would help us do that together. Lord, we we praise you for the the good news of Christ. We thank you that it is a message of freedom and of life. We thank you that the grace of Christ finds its place in its home, not in any particular culture or any particular person or any particular learning or knowledge or understanding or any particular country or nationality or anything else, but Lord, it is for all people across the whole world. Thank you that you are drawing people to your son, Father. Thank you that your church is is diverse, is, is just creative and, and there's just, yeah, just we can see it across the world and across, even across our city, what you are doing. Lord, help us to be united in Christ. The unity we have in him, would we keep, would we enjoy? And Lord, I pray particularly for our culture, for our community at the Gate Church, Lord's. Would we love one another well? Would we keep Christ the centre of all? And please would we be a church that does become an increasingly diverse family because of the people you're drawing to yourself and, and, and the gospel culture at work amongst us, that you might be glorified and we might be encouraged in what you are doing through your son in this day and this age. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>